Cadell Last, welcome to the metagame. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. So um, you're a philosopher. Uh, your background's also in anthropology, and you focus on biocultural evolution, mind matter relation, and speculative futures. But there, there was one blurb that really struck me, and it kind of connected with my experience of you when I first encountered your stuff, maybe in 2020. Um, and I'll, I'll just tell you what that was like. You seem like a lifelong truth seeker, someone who's not afraid to pursue truth come what may. And it's almost as if that journey started in a more academic, philosophical, abstract, intellectual place. And then eventually, just by the desire to stay in integrity, it let you down this path of embodiment and practice. And that's the impression I got. And then I saw this blurb, which totally mapped onto that. So I'm going to read it to you, and I'd love to hear you add to it or edit it in case things have changed. But it said, paradoxes and contradictions in your embodied performance led you to a deeper spiritual and analytical inquiry, which included psychoanalysis, men's work, circling, and a realization of how sexual energy informs knowing. So there's so many things in that that I'd love to unpack. But would you say this is accurate for Cadell last today? Yeah, yeah, I wrote that probably in the last year or something like that. It's, yeah, it's definitely, yeah, a way of describing my path, I think. I could go go deeper into that if you want. I'd love that. Maybe give us a glimpse of the the origin story for how someone ends up in a journey like that. Yeah, um, well, in regards to the, the abstract, to the embodied level, I, I'd, I'd want to almost hypothesize that that is um is a journey that many western intellectuals have taken so i don't think i'm necessarily unique in that regard but it it, it does have um a relationship to i think the way we conceptualize universality hmm. so let me unpack a little bit what i mean by by that is that i think that spontaneously and this might have a deeper sort of developmental um uh, relationship to maybe the human mind and the way the human mind sort of comes to understand universality but the the way i think that it it manifested in me is that there's this first there's this attempt at what i would call an abstract universality mm -hmm. and an abstract universality i mean you know i have a sort of a an understanding of all of the major disciplines, you know, cosmology, physics, chemistry, biology, anthropology, sort of getting a big history point of view of um, all phenomena known to uh, observation. But then you're sort of, at least in my experience, you're kind of left with a very weird feeling, which is you have this sort of abstract universality, but, you know, around the dinner table with your family, or I remember even like talking to my, talking to like my third girlfriend about, um, you know, big history. And she just was like blank stare, mm. you know, like didn't care <laughs> you know, like, or like, or like I'm, or like I'm with, or like, or I'm like, I'm with my, my family and like, it seemed like the things that were really meaningful, like, for example, I don't want to like um, reveal too much, but like, uh, for example, 
problems of alcoholism or, um, you know, uh, intimate tensions, um, you know, uh, midlife crises, divorces, Mm -hmm. you know, all of these things going on in the environment, which is like most immediate, which is most concrete. And it's like, I'm here with my abstract universality and I'm like, this doesn't like, there's something I'm missing here. (laughs) Right. Like, you know, there's something that's not quite, quite working. Like, or there's, there's something that I, 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 I'm not cluing into. Um, I guess there was like this unconscious presupposition that if I learn enough in this relationship to abstract universality, that somehow I would become some figure of knowing that would be able to resolve the tensions in day-to-day life or something like that. That I'm not saying explicitly thought that, but I think that maybe there's something unconscious going on there that I was going to resolve something mm-hmm. um, that was going on in a more concrete, um, immediate way. Um, but, you know, the basic paradox or the contradiction that brought me back to the the singularity of myself and, and as it relates to abstract universality, I, I think that abstract universality through these negativities becomes a concrete universality, which is the paradoxes is that it moves through the particular, mm-hmm. meaning that, that the universality is no longer this abstract representation of all the phenomena, but it's actually something moving through your day-to-day cracks. And, and, and so that, that's sort of like where I had the perspective change on, on my, on my motion and my relationship to to universality and and i suppose that that now informs a lot of the way in which i read um intellectual systems mm-hmm. i get very skeptical of intellectual systems which are not coming from a deeply personal place because i feel like it's a avoidance of this negativity you know the mm-hmm. alcoholism, the divorce, the intimate tensions, the, does your girlfriend care about what you're doing actually, you know, <laughs> like all of these things are now more primary and, and that's like more where my, my learning comes from. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things I really liked about your work. I noticed that most philosophers, they speak with a, with a distance, like a cognitive distance from the things that they're critiquing, almost as if they're standing outside of some edifice that they have, uh, complete a complete view of and you've very con very explicitly in in some of your lectures included yourself in the thing that you're describing and made it very personal and to me as someone who's in, encountering that lecture it also has that effect on myself because when you're describing the particular aspects of of your life the details of your life you know i remember you were talking about nietzsche and this theme of solitude and then you took a tangent to describe how solitude has impacted your development. And then it just makes me think of my own solitude and it uh, re-enlivens what otherwise might seem like a, you know, very cold cerebral activity. And that's, I just want to say quickly that that's to me, the meaning of concrete universality is that the more you go personal, Mm. the more you become universal because like, I describe my experience of solitude, but it resonates in the other. And that's, that's sort of, I think, the, the, the little flip there. Yeah, the personal is universal. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's good. That's almost like an affirmation for, for this conversation. So I resist the urge to, um, to not include myself in, in what we talk about. Um, and maybe that's a good way to, 
for me to say one of the reasons why I was particularly interested in speaking with you. And it's that in the last, I would say, six months or so, I've been drawn more and more to Nietzsche and his articulation of what's been going on in the West. And I've had like Nietzsche phases all throughout my life, um, you know, starting like with most men, you know, when you're in your early 20s. Um, but yeah, lately I've just been so drawn to what he had to say. And there's so many different entry points into this conversation, but I guess the one that feels salient to me right now is Nietzsche's emphasis on the body and how, in a sense, he was like the last philosopher and he was criticizing all these abstract intellectual architectures that prior philosophers were creating and instead opted for something that was, was a lot more primal and embodied. Um, and I think you see that in his like aphoristic style as well, where instead of creating a, a complete like argument for some, some complete platonic form of something, he's just inviting you to participate in the process of thinking, in the experience of, of thinking. And that's just been so, uh, so alive to me lately. Um, and then I encountered your work and it seems like Nietzsche has had a big influence on you. So maybe you can tell us uh, what that journey with, with Nietzsche was like. Did you also have an experience when you were in your early 20s and then kind of like a re-encounter as you understood him more deeply? Actually, actually not, not, that's not my, my relation, although I know that that is, um, a common path, um, of a sort of experiencing Nietzsche as a, as a young, as a young man, and then coming to him a little later, my, my path's a little different. Um, my path was basically that I, I didn't really get into philosophy until I was maybe in my later twenties. Mm. Um, and, and, and the reason why was because I was, um, so focused on science, um, and, and, you know, whatever I do, I tend to give it a sort of a laser focus. And, and, um, and I, de I definitely was kind of in the, um, the ideology of thinking, you know, like, um, a Stephen Hawking or a Richard Dawkins style of, of, of thinking like, you know, philosophy is kind of outdated, you know, mm. when I was, when I was, this, this is in my early twenties, you know, thinking philosophy is a little outdated and, almost thinking as if science can replace philosophy um, and that all the big questions that philosophers used to answer about, you know, the fundamental nature of things could now be taken over by the, by the evolutionary biologies and the quantum mm. cosmologies and, and stuff like this. Um, but I did encounter Nietzsche through my interest in transhumanism first, um, because there are some transhumanist philosophers that I, I, I was really into and one in particular, Max Moore, um, you know, was trying to basically take some of the foundational principles of Nietzsche and inscribing them into transhumanism. So that's sort of where I first encountered Nietzsche's ideas. But my sort of relationship to Nietzsche as it sort of developed once I got into philosophy was basically saying that Nietzsche is the missing piece in the, the new atheist arguments. So like when the new atheist arguments like the 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 Sam Harris's, the the Richard Dawkins, the Christopher Hitchens, um, you know, they they forward a type of a, a form of atheism. And Nietzsche also forwards a form of atheism. But Nietzsche's form of atheism has something which theirs don't, in my opinion, which is which is that embodied personal context. And also not just the God is dead, but also the courage of confronting the abyss. 
and mm. the emotional dimension of confronting the abyss. And I feel like that equation in Nietzsche is, is missing in our society is like, it's very common today to say we live in a post-religious society or, you know, we, we don't really believe in God the way pre-modern people supposedly believed in God, you know, in the sense of like going to war for God and like, you know, you know there's century long battles over, over different religious interpretations and stuff. We don't believe like that. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but, you know, that what has opened up instead is this sort of hedonistic nihilism. And, and in Nietzsche, there's, it's like always connected is that it's not just God is dead. It's that the terror and the emotional impact of God's death means that, um, you need to have the courage to become the overman, basically, yeah. you know, you need, you need to be a human overcoming because if you're not a human overcoming, um, then you fall into this hedonistic loop. And this hedonistic loop is, uh, I think, what he refers to as the last man, um, which has no capacity to overcome himself or herself. Yeah. So I think we... that and the emotional weight of that. Uh, maybe we can define some of these terms. So the last man, the overman, and the abyss. Yeah. So... What you want to think here is that so God is like a, a objective background for um, a society under a Christian metaphysics or an Islamic metaphysics or some sort of monotheistic uh, order. Um, the death of God opens up a background that's abyssal, so that mm. it's like a you know in I want to make almost like a strange comparison here with like um, with physics because. In Newtonian physics, you have a background of absolute space-time. Mm -hmm. And then in a lot of quantum gravity, they talk about a background independence, meaning that there is no background. <laughs> you know, you lose the background. You know, and I think that's happening in, in the theological dimension with Nietzsche, is that you have a background, which is God. And then you, you lose that background, and there's a background independence. But that's, that's the abyss you're confronting. Mm -hmm. You know, there's, there's no more background. So that's 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 the how I how I understand abyss, and so what unifies humans after you know in Nietzsche I suppose is is the double move of losing the background and then confronting the abyssal background, and that's sort of where the potential. Now it's a void, but it's a void potential. Mm -hmm. So it's a there's a potentiality in the void, and that's sort of where the 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 the, the I guess the the relation between the last man and the overman appears is you either you 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 sort of are like you 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 succumb to the spirit of gravity in Nietzsche which would be the last man succumbs to the spirit of gravity like it's like the you know you you, you can't overcome mm -hmm. you're just falling you know you're you're falling into simple pleasure you're falling into uh, simple immediacy. You're giving up because what does it matter anyway? You know, uh, you know, the, all the ultimate meanings are gone. So what does it matter anyway? That I do anything, right? Um, whereas the overman is 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 a is a creative overcoming of of not just yourself but even the human condition. And I think that's not I, that's try something I try to emphasize in the courses is is that. I'm teaching a course on this book, Zarathustra, is that Nietzsche isn't really even so much a friend of humanity. <laughs> mm. You know, like he's not a, he's not a humanist. 
Right. Like he he's he even says like explicitly like in the opening like he's like, you know, humans are only lovable as a overcoming. Like humans are only lovable in a as a as a going beyond themselves. As a bridge. Yeah, as a bridge. Yeah, yeah. 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 So we have this and it's very emotional because you know, there is a way in which we can spontaneously think about the human being as an eternal form. Hmm. You know, even even if even if like so for example, like you mentioned Plato with the forms, like you can like you can like on a certain abstract on so back to abstract universality, like on a certain abstract universality, you can say, ah, we don't need Plato, whatever, the eternal forms, that's nonsense. But then you say, well, human form, human being, you know, we're transient, we're going to be overcome, there's going to be something that replaces us, or we're going to overcome ourselves, and there'll be a different form. Well, you know, can you really take that emotionally, like concretely? Mm. You know, that's tough. That's tough. That's a process. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be some tears. <laughs> so um, I, I'd like to tie the abyss, the last man, the overman with my own personal uh, journey, because I think those touch points, and actually a couple others, like the death of God maps onto to my life. I was raised as a Christian and I still remember what it was like. You know, I still have, have glimmers in my mind for what it was like to live in a, an ontology where God was real, where you could commune with him, where there was this higher power that had a certain interest in the decisions and the choices you made and also could equip you in making the, be the best choices. And one of the principles of my particular flavor of Christianity when I was, you know, a kid and teenager in high school was this emphasis on knowing what God's will was, because, you know, I could have an idea of what God wants and it could be wrong. It's probably wrong. So there's this humility in understanding what God actually wants. And that, that's like a, I see that now as a metaphor for this truth seeking impulse. And that eventually led to me asking deeper questions about the religion that I was raised in, because I had to pursue the truth, not my idea of God. And then eventually, you know, you saw off the branch that you're sitting on, and then you descend into the abyss. And I remember in, uh, in undergrad, um, I struggled a lot with, with meaning and uh, motivating myself to do anything. Uh, and I'm so glad that I didn't have uh, ideas like the psychiatric notions of depression floating around in my head because I think um, that would have been something to that would, that would have worked against me but instead I I was able to so you know there's like a last man period in a sense or the temptations of the last man of the kind of this hedonistic escape from from the abyss um, I definitely felt that and then the way out and I was actually saying this to to Bonito Roy recently um, the thing that helped me overcome that was embodied practices. Like it sounds very trivial, but I remember when I first started taking cold showers, I stopped feeling quote unquote depressed because the cold water would put my body into like a fight or flight state. And then I'd, I'd get out of my head. Maybe this is what you mean by, by a conceptual universality or abstract universality. And then I'd be thrown into the moment and in the particulars of, of my body. And in that, in that world, in the physical world, there's actually concrete things you can do to overcome. Um, 
and now that I, you know, more recently read Nietzsche, I see that he's always talking about the body and um, its significance. So, yeah, I wonder, um, I wonder if you can uh, expand on on why Nietzsche was so. I have some ideas why Nietzsche was so concerned about the body, but um, why do you think he was? Well, I, I think, well, th yeah, thanks for, thanks for that, that story. It's always good to know people's path through these, um, through these dimensions and these, these questions. And it always gives sort of like a parallax view. Mm. Um, um, I think at least what comes across as one of the most powerful notions in, in Thus Spoke Zarathustra for me is, he says, um, the soul is body and nothing but the body. Mm. So it's just this idea that when we think about the soul, we usually think about it as some extra material separate from the body. And we imagine it as getting some sort of heavenly body. And I think as a consequence of that, we don't listen to the voice of the body because we, 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 we don't think it has anything to tell us. We don't think it has anything to say to us. Mm-hmm. You know, we, 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 in so many ways, disrespect the body. Um, and, and I suppose there is this unconscious image, whether someone's, again, whether someone's identifying as religious or not, I think that there's this unconscious image of wanting a heavenly body. Mm -hmm. You know, like, I think that comes in the transhumanist worldview too, you know, and that, that's something I encountered in the scientific world, which is you want a heavenly body. <laughs> you know, you, it's, it's not going to be this body, you know. Um, but this is coming as a consequence of a, it's in the gap of not listening to the body and not listening to the intelligence of the body. And I think that's one of the the greatest paradoxes of the modern evolutionary world. Because on the one hand, in the modern evolutionary world, you have this idea that well, we're we're all products of evolution. We're all mm -hmm. products of life. We're we're these organic we're these organic processes. But at the same time, you don't listen to the body, right? Like, and I think that's the paradox. That's the paradox of like even the performativity, the historical performativity of the evolutionary biologist, mm. because the historical performativity of the evolutionary biologist should be much more in tune with the primal body, you know, than than it, than it is. So, like, like it's 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 just that there is there is however many billions of years of intelligence here in the present. And, and that information has survived for billions of years. You know, it's, it's an immortal, immortal gene line, you know? And, and, and so for Nietzsche, that is the soul and that is the pathway to the soul and, and, and a pathway to, you know, he's almost saying, get rid of all the images in your head of, like almost maybe similar to what, you know, because I think there's paradoxes here because it's, you know, there are some similarities with maybe what you were told in the Christian tradition of, you know, don't listen to your ideas of what God is. Um, but he's almost saying like, get, get the, Im get all the metaphysical imagery out of your head. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, 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 you're so disconnected from yourself that any of your ideas are nonsense. Right. <laughs> you know, so let's, let's just get out of all your ideas. It's, you know, even, even, um, you know, to bring in uh, the, the Hegelian dialectic here for a sec is that even Hegel says in regards to the dialectical process, he says, don't bring your bright ideas. 
you know, you don't need to bring your bright ideas <laughs> because you don't know yourself well enough to know even the foundations of your ideas. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, so it, it, it's, it's, and so it, it's, it's basically, you know, Nietzsche is trying to get in touch with a primal intelligence of the psyche. And, and that's, that's one of the, and that's one of the, the, another interesting things is that because the dualism of the psyche and the body is, is dissipated, you know, his notion of the psyche is bodily, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, his, his notion of the psyche is bodily. So there's a, there's basically, you know, and, and there I would actually bring in, bring in Freud for a moment because for, for Freud, you know, the, you don't really know what the body in itself is, but you always know the body through the mind, but the mind is totally bodily. Mm. So it's, it's just, it's just an intelligence. It's just an intelligence in the body, um, which is, I suppose what you could call the primary process of the mind. Mm -hmm. What the quote I'm reminded of is, uh, Nietzsche said, never trust the thought you had indoors or something like that, or like all best thinking is done when walking. And right. I think that connects exactly to what you're saying. And it's also true. I noticed that if I spend too much time indoors, as it is easy to do these days when a lot of your work is digital, your personality changes. And often, actually last week I did this experiment where I had this thought, I was like, maybe movement is the highest form of intelligence. And if that's the case, what would it be like if I started my days where within five minutes of waking up, I was out the door? How would that change the rest of the day? And I did that and I noticed I was so much more aggressive and willful with everything else I did that day. I had a, almost a, an impatience with the pace of, of everything else. Um, and that allowed me to actually get so much more done. Not that that was the goal, but there was something about the, just, I guess, reclaiming myself as a, as a, as a being in motion because mm -hmm. it, otherwise I, you know, I'd wake up, go to my computer and start writing or something. And I'd you know, be still for many hours of the day. So, um, there was a lot of practical wisdom in that. Yeah. I think that's, that's, um, I mean, the, the point there, I think that's, that's most connected to, to Nietzsche is that, you know, the spirit of gravity is, is trying to bring you down and almost deaden your motivational systems, mm -hmm. you know, and, and, you know, one of the interesting things about the, the fictional character of Zarathustra, which I think there's a lot of truth in the fictional character of Zarathustra that, that Nietzsche's developing there, which is he's not this enlightened being that's sitting still. You know, you meet him and he's hiking, you know, he's, he's, you know, he's talking to his animals and, and the animals are saying, Zarathustra, do you want to go on a big hike today? And he's like, yeah, that's yeah, a great idea. Mm. Let's go on a big, a big hike today, you know, like, and, and, and so like you get this idea of, of, a, of, a, of a being that's, that's in perpetual motion. And I think that there is an unconscious death drive where people actually want things to stop. Right. Where people want things like there's there's actually they actually you know there's actually a part in Thus Spoke Zarathustra where Nietzsche is having like a it's almost like I call it like an intimate partner fight with life you mm. know like how like husbands and wives have a fight you know, mm. he's like having that fight with life itself 
and he's like saying, uh, I, you know, he's basically saying how much he loves life and life's and life responds to him saying, you don't love life as much as you say you love life. And like, mm -hmm. she's almost like, you know, she's almost like saying, you don't love me as much as you say you love me, but you don't love me, you know, and, and this, this, type, <laughs> this type of stuff, which is, it's, it's funny to, to read it in that way. But there's this way in which he's getting at this part of our, our mind, which actually does want things to stop, you know, mm -hmm. that death drive. And, uh, and, and so, so I think there is this wisdom in staying and, and maybe there is a point where all human beings go through that, that, that valley of death of, of encountering that desire to, to, to stop. And, uh, there's the possibility that you come out on the other side of that with a new invigoration and a, and a new motion. Mm hmm. Mm. Yeah. So, um. What this brings up is the something we said at the beginning, which was in your blurb. You, you said you're curious about how sexual energy informs knowing. And to me, that's like the, the opposite of the death drive. So there's also this uh, libidinal energy that that is the life drive. And that's to me, that's such an interesting question. How does sexual energy inform knowing? Um, what did you mean by that question? And do you have any clues for its answer? Yeah. So like, let me give like a very practical, uh, personal example is like, I, I spent basically 12 or 13 years building up towards, uh, getting my, my doctorate, like the, when the, the dream originally formed. Mm. And, uh, and then, you know, when I finally, um, you know, finished the process, um, you know, I always had this, well, I had a confrontation with myself basically, because I always had this underlying assumption, I suppose that, that again, something was going to be resolved by me finishing this process. Yeah. Um, you know, you could say there's a, there's a death drive in there, but, but the, uh, you know, the truth of the confront confrontation with myself was that here I am, you know, achieving my dream at, at so-called the peak of a social performance or hierarchy and uh and my sexual life was just a mess mm. you know my my you know and and the thing is is that the thing is that is it's humbling because it's humbling because you have all these complex ideas you've got all these professors you know asking you questions you know saying uh you know good job and stuff like this uh, and then there's something actually that's very simple and very stupid in some sense uh, this sexual urge, which is undermining your entire life. Yeah. You know, and, 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 and so, so the, basically the idea I have here is you've got to start with the foundations of your being, which can be humiliating, which can be humbling, which can, can break your entire, uh, structure of ideas. And it's, and it's, it's, it's sort of, um, you know, building from a more real foundation, I guess it's like the, the core repetition of concrete universality. Mm. I would say like, that's the, the core repetition of concrete universality is that sexual impulse and that sexual drive, because, you know, it's, it's literally where life comes from. It's literally where creativity comes from. It's literally where you came from, right? Like you were once, you were once that impulse. <laughs> like literally, you know, literally, and it's weird to think about it, but you know, it's, it's, you know, you're going to the ground of yourself quite literally. 
you know so, and you learn a lot about you learn a lot about yourself by by investigating like the intelligence of the images in your head about that like like they're telling you something they're screaming at you like i was i was i was just like i told you before we started recording i was watching a documentary on jeffrey dahmer and jeffrey dahmer was a serial killer but he was deeply sexually repressed mm-hmm. he was battling with his he's battling with his he, sexual images that he can't he can't process. He can't understand them. He's t- tortured by them, and so so that my. But I think that expresses the the point well, which is that if you're not really in tune with the fundamental libidinal repetitions of your body, you're going to be self tortured. Mm. You know, and I I think that that you know, and, and accepting those, accepting something, you know, and it's not like it's easy. To, like it's weird. We live in a society where, you know, that's one of the reasons I got into men's circles a little bit was because. You know, it, it's it's not there's not many outlets to like talk about. You know what turns me on? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, w- w- what really gets me going? Uh, what do I want in a sexual partner? You know, uh, and and here talking about the the more the more sexual dimensions, like what do I want in bed, and how do I want to perform in bed? Right, like these things are like, and especially like when I, you know, like for if I just think about, you know. Um, this dimension of myself is like, it's where I encounter very also childlike emotions. Yeah. You know, like, cause if I, if I don't perform up to my own notion or if I don't feel like I'm being recognized as I would like to be recognized, you know, I can feel hurt, you know, I can feel sad. I can feel like I'm, I'm upset that I have to communicate my desire. Like I have to say, you know, this is what I would like, or this is how I would like our relationship to be, or this is how I would like us, this is what I would like us to work on, mm-hmm. you know, together, you know, and, and to, to, to communicate that there's almost like this feeling of a resistance, like, like it should happen without me saying it, mm-hmm. you know, so it's, it, you know, and you encounter these childlike emotions sometimes because you're, because you're bringing, being pulled back to your ground. Which explains why people would resist it. And I think nowadays there's so many convenient ways to fully escape. You know, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned the transhumanists and to me, like, I, I don't know, maybe I'm not being fair to them, but they represent, uh, kind of like the apotheosis of disembodiment, you know, uploading your psyche to, to the metaverse. And I would say that in a way the metaverse is already here because most of the challenges that modern people face are challenges of abundance as opposed to scarcity. Like there's, there's too much refined carbohydrates and processed food. There's too much porn. There's too much stimulation or super normal stimuli on the internet. And so it's very easy for that internal tension that you just described of, you know, the, the inner child, um, sexual drive questions about what turns you on how to have like an integrated sexuality, like all that complexity can just be diffused by escaping into technology. And I think that brings us to the last man and also part of the reason why I think Nietzsche feels very alive. Do you think that the last man is already here in a sense, uh, you know, with, with all the Netflix and Uber Eats and social media and digital escapism yeah absolutely 
I mean, absolutely. Yeah. And and the thing is, is that the last man, like this, it's a weird thing, this notion of the last man, because the last man, I think, is a function of our success. Mm -hmm. Meaning the last man is a function of the fact that we're no longer in scarcity. The last man is a function of our technological capacities. The last man is a function of, you know, um, in some sense, the, the scientific paradigm allowing for so much hyper-efficiency um, that, you know, in many ways, human beings never had a chance to be the last man before before now. That's right. <laughs> because, yeah. you, you know, you, you, like I, I was, whenever I was talking to my granddad telling me about his childhood, I was like, you know, he's like, he's got like, he's sleeping in a room with, he's sharing a room with nine other siblings. Mm. You know, like, it's, it's, you know, it's, it, he's, he's, you know, he's dealing with, with constraints, which are just unfathomable for most modern pe people living in a developed country. You know, so I think the thing is, is that the loss of those constraints, which are just naturally imposed and in which a lot of civilization has been trying to reduce or eliminate those constraints now confronts us with the situation where we have to to basically develop our own constraints mm -hmm. you know like like so for example the, the cold shower example is a is an example of a a certain paradoxical constraint where you're putting yourself into something which is inherently uncomfortable yeah. you know instead of having a warm shower you, you know th think about throughout history how many people would have killed to have a daily warm shower that's right <laughs> like almost everyone <laughs> you know, but but that's the weird paradoxical reversal of human civilization is like now we've got the possibility to have a warm shower whenever we'd like. I could have as many as I want in the day, mm -hmm. basically. And like we get up and have a cold shower <laughs> because we've we've got to we've got to generate sort of that that tension. And I think that's that's the thing. And I think staying with the tension is the the motion mm -hmm. instead mm -hmm. of wanting the tension to be over. And, and it's so tempting for our minds to want the tension to be over, you know? And I think for me, like I'm trying to like, it is constantly, I have to remind myself constantly, you know, it, it's not something that you just, you know, it's, it's not a linear thing where you just get out of it. I think one in what, you know, I think even like when you study Zarathustra's speech, like he's internally struggling, mm. you know, like, you know, he's, he's from the start an enlightened being, but he's still internally struggling with things, you know? And I, I pay attention to that in, in the course is that not only his teaching to the, to the other p humans, but also his own tensions, you know, that he's going through, you know? So, but, but in regards to like keeping that tension alive is like, so for example, is like, you have this feeling like I described when I was finishing my PhD or like when I released my PhD thesis was like, you're going to somehow there's some unconscious, something's going to be resolved, mm -hmm. you know? And, and like, like, for example, whatever creative project I do, you know, there's this unconscious thing where like, eventually it's going to be resolved, you know, but, but you have to constantly remind yourself, no, the thing is the constant creativity and the tension, you know, that's what you want too. like. And, and so like, it's almost like, you know, the images of whatever it is, the money or the fame or the what it, recognition or, or whatever is like, that's not actually the thing, you know, and it's a weird feeling to remind yourself that it's not the thing because like, I've had situations where, you know, you get the money or you get the recognition or you get the whatever, you know, that you think you want, but it's actually, you know, you realize, like, if you reflect on those moments, you realize very quickly, that's not the thing. Yeah.
<laughs> so what you want is just to keep creatively, you know, the I think the money and the fame and the recognition are just proxies. They're they're not the they're not the um the foundational cause of your motion. They're 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 almost like um proxies for a sign that you could keep going. Mm-hmm. You know, because because if people are recognizing you or if you get some funding or something like that, well, that means I can keep going. <laughs> right, right. Yeah, it's a, a couple analogies, you know, quite naturally come to mind. Like, it's almost like you're describing a tantric approach to life where you're not aiming for orgasm. You're aiming to kind of play with the sexual energy and the sexual tension. And to me, the the place where that feels very clear other than the sexual context is with music. Because... In a piece of music, if all you did was like resolve the tension, you know, that, that's being created by, by notes and harmonies, then you wouldn't have a piece of music. And music is like the sonic play of, of tension. And you create a lot of it. And it's in the most tense moments that there's the most potential for emotion. And there's this idea in Nietzsche as well that the best way to live is to see your life as as a work of art and to me that's been in a way like the minimum viable philosophy for popping out of the the meaning crisis because i don't need to answer bigger cosmological questions or metaphysical questions because i understand aesthetic experiences i understand when i'm experiencing beauty and how life is self-justified in those moments i understand when i listen to a beautiful piece of music i'm not I'm not upset that it's going to end. It's, it's sufficient in a way. It's, it's complete in a way. Um, it's complete in its incompleteness. And if you just live like that, if you see all of your life as a, as a work of art, then to me that, that's a pretty decent response to the abyss. Uh, I wonder if you, if you think of that, and maybe you can riff on this idea of you know, Nietzsche's idea that life is only ever really justified as an aesthetic phenomena. Right. Well, I, I relate to that. Like, so for example, like it's almost like, you know, you're in, in the right spot kind of thing. Mm. Um, like I have the phenomenon where if I find a song I really like, I just put it on a loop Oh yeah. You know? and you don't want, you know, you, you just keep going with it. Like, and, and, and it's like, and I know that when I'm in my creative drive as well, like where you're not even thinking about the end of it you're just in the creative drive and you're enjoying the creative drive itself. And the, for me, like, and maybe this is like also the reason why I had a relationship to embodied practices, you know, even during my academic time was because I was always into sports. Mm. And, and for me, like when I'm playing, when I was playing, especially when I was in high school and my early twenties was like the, the mentality of an athlete. Like the mentality of an athlete when you're playing the game, when you're in the game, you're just there in the game. And, uh, and you know, when the game's over, the first thing you'd like is for there to be another game. Mm. You know, like, you know, in, in baseball, for example, you play every day, you know, and, and it, you, the game's over, then tomorrow we have another game and just keep going. I remember, I remember, <laughs> I remember talking to some kid who, who, or a guy in high school who didn't understand my interest in sports and specifically he was asking me about, sports video games and he was saying well what happens when you when you finish the season in your game i was like well we just start a new season you know go on to the next season (laughs) so it just keeps going you know and you just want it to keep going right and and so 
um, there is a feeling of life is self self justified in those in those moments, like you're saying, and it's also like it's a type of overcoming of yourself too. In in and it's probably the experiences. I'd imagine I'm not a musician, but I mean, imagine if you are a musician that there's a type of self overcoming and learning how to be a musician, and also an elevation of your spirit in the actual playing of the music and the dramatization of the whole experience, which is a type of self overcoming and. And I know I know in sports that's how it feels. It's like a self overcoming when you, because I mean you're doing something which is inherently challenging and difficult. I mean you're exhausted and tired at the end of it, <laughs> right? Like you're not yeah. sitting on the couch. And so yeah, I put those two in in line as the music and sport as a, examples of ways in which that tension can become not only enjoyable but it's like this it's like this surplus. <laughs> I always had this feeling ever since I was a kid of like that there's something lacking, something missing. And mm-hmm. I had these feelings of like, I had these feelings, like whether it's sports or music, um, where there's this surplus, you know, like life is not only enough, but it's over enough. Mm. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Good times. I'm, I'm reminded of, uh, when I first started, uh, lifting weights and mm-hmm. how, I was driven by a goal of like strength and physical fitness and acquiring a certain physique. And then eventually, I remember there was like this torturous moment where I was under a, a barbell squatting a heavy weight. And there's like this thought, like, what the fuck am I doing? You know, like, it's just so much pain and, and all of this. And then I realized that something shifted where it just became something I do. And it was as if, you know, the physical gains were secondary, you know, like one day I'm going to look at myself in the mirror and be like, oh yeah, look, I I look a bit bigger, a bit stronger, but that was no longer what was driving me. But that, that, that encounter with, with my own edge that I experienced under the barbell, that that's what was driving me. And that now this is just something I do. It's not like if someone asks like, why do you do it? I, I wouldn't really. It would feel like a silly question in a way. Like I, I could give an answer, but it would it would be kind of made up. And the real answer would, could only have been found in that moment where everything was really clear, you know, past and future fall away. And all you're doing is just sending signals through your nervous system as much as you possibly can so that you can put this bar back on the rack. And, and that comes to mind. I think this is also a good way to segue into this idea of vitality, which is present in Nietzsche and absent in contemporary society. I'll, I'll share a personal thing. You know, I've, I've, I've done a lot of, uh, I guess, like exploration into personal development, philosophy, you know, perhaps starting with resolving the death of God in my own life. And about three years ago, I noticed that one of the most common threads, probably the, the con- most consistent thread from when I was a kid to, to now was that I was in search of vitality. Basically, like if there was one thing that I was really looking for, it was to wake up every morning and feel that sense of complete aliveness that I would sometimes feel, honestly, as a Christian, when I'd feel connected to God, I'd feel like the Holy Spirit was like coursing through me. And then I had different moments, like, you know, the cold shower, uh, weightlifting, uh, in my dating life, you know, whenever I had the courage to approach really attractive women, all these things would just make me feel alive. You know, even talking about it now, I'm noticing like a, 
like uh, my heart rate's going up like a little bit in a very excited way. And I, I've, I, I named that a few years ago. I realized, okay, you know what? Like maybe I don't fully understand who I am and what I'm trying to do, but this seems like pretty clear. And more of this, at least for now, you know, while I'm in my late twenties and thirties, early thirties, I, I think, I think this is worth pursuing. And then I noticed uh, these themes in, in Nietzsche. And I also noticed how our time is a very unvital time. You know, you meet people and they're, they're kind of, uh, even people um, who are practicing things, they're, they're kind of practicing, um, I don't know, how do I say this without, without being uncharitable? Uh, it's like, you know, I have a lot of friends who, who practice meditation and I noticed that I had a complex relationship with meditation because it, to me, it was moving in the opposite direction. It was creating a more, it was like more like a death drive was making me want to meditate or there was this, um, escape from life, uh, or my friend calls it like emptiness maxing. You know, you just, you just enter like the void itself and identify with it while what really motivates me is, is uh, transcending the void and becoming alive. Um, yeah, I'd love to hear your personal experiences with that. And, and if that framing of vitality resonates, and then maybe if you can tell us what, how Nietzsche thought about vitality. Well, I say, <clears throat> I think there's, um, there's a strange relationship between life and death. I think it's a very, very strange relationship. I wouldn't, I wouldn't pretend to, uh, to know all the answers to that strange tension, but, um, in regards to my own life, um, I do feel like there is a spontaneous vitality that we have as children. Mm -hmm. And, uh, actually the meta, well, to, I'll connect it a little bit to Nietzsche already because the whole I think there's a triadic structure in Thus Spoke Zarathustra, which connects the entire book, which is the, the camel, the lion, and the child. But in order to get to that metaphor of the camel, the lion, and the child for a sec, I think when we're, when we're children, we have this spontaneous vitality. And then because of the demands of civilization here, you can think along the lines of like um, Freud's uh, civilization and its discontents. Mm -hmm. You know, you have to become a camel. You know, it's, it's almost like this relationship between the, the pleasure principle and the reality principle. You know, there's a tension here between the pleasure principle and the reality principle, which is dramatizing itself out, you know, from the first desire to uh, be with the mother, uh, to feel safe and protected and have pleasure from the mother. Mm -hmm. um, to, you know, when you're literally when you're an infant, all you have to do is cry and you get what you want if you have a good mother. <laughs> right. Yeah, you just gotta cry and then you get what you want. But I mean, when you're 18, just crying isn't gonna cut it. You know, you gotta learn language, you gotta learn all complex <laughs> social rules and uh, and uh, and 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 so forth. And uh, you know, there's this whole dance that goes into becoming an adult. And anyway, the the whole point of the camel is that you have to take some sort of responsibility. You have to carry a heavy load. Um, and in some sense, you carry a heavy load for carrying a heavy load's sake. Like, so for example, in, in when you were talking about lifting weights and your original sort of, why am I doing this? I'm just carrying a heavy load. But then you realize, oh, I'm, I'm trying to get to the edge, you know, and, and that's the lion. 
which is the lion wants to go to the to the edge doesn't want to just carry a heavy load to carry a heavy load it wants to figure out its own desire mm. you know it wants to figure out why am i doing this you know it wants to, it wants to, wants to go deeper um but in any case in my, in my life i feel like um there's a way in which if you make certain compromises with you know society <laughs> broadly broadly speaking like i can give practical examples of what i mean with making compromises with society so like ever since i was an intellectual i was always i think driven by a very genuine intellectual thirst and curiosity mm -hmm. but i had to make several compromises with the university to get through the through the game right so like when i was in my master's program i did my master's at the university of toronto and i really wanted to get into this anthropology program at the university of toronto and I ended up getting uh, into the program on the condition that I was studying under someone who was an expert in lemurs and, and I didn't care about lemurs, you know, but, but, but I did it, you know, and, and I, and I, and I built my, my, my true passion on the side. I was actually, that's when I was getting into YouTube and blogging and stuff. So it was kind of like on the side, I was doing that while I was playing the game of, of, of doing the, the lemur research. But then for my PhD, I was saying. Um, I'm not going to make that same compromise to do my PhD because that's a much more time. And I want to make sure if I'm doing my PhD, it's in something where I'm really passionate about it. And so I took a year off to make sure I got into the program where I had the freedom to do what I wanted to do. And I ended up getting a program where I could study the technological singularity, which is what I was really passionate about at the time. But this story is just to say that you have to make so many constraints with society in order to sort of move up the ladder and then that can sort of deaden that childlike vitality basically yeah. it's almost like it's almost like the child gets buried underneath that weight of the camel you know like to to do to do that that hard grind that hard you know that heavy lifting um and i think that's where the temptation to identify with the void comes from and that's where the 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 sort of the identity with the death drive kicks in because you just want to get rid of the heavy load and you want to be nothing and you want to disappear. And I have that feeling too. You just want to disappear. And there's, and the thing is, is like, we're not like a video game system. You can't just turn us off. You know, like mm. I can't just turn this off, you know, like that's suicide. Right. So you can't just turn it off. You, you know, you, I feel heavy. I want it. I want to feel not heavy, you know, but I can't turn myself off at the same time. So, you know, I, after my PhD, for example, I call that my, my void times, mm. you know, my lack, my lack times. And that's why I started, I did a series on my YouTube channel called the philosophy of lack which was reinvestigating concept of concepts and philosophy through the idea of lack. But in any case, in, on a personal level, what was happening in my life with identification with lack was that I was going into deep fasting or I was going into deep meditation, right? And, and with deep fast, or I was going into deep celibacy, mm. right? Cel like all lack, right? All retraction, all nothingness instead of a positivity instead of a vitality, instead of eating, like eating or your sexual drive or being, um, even a, uh, uh, an ego in motion, mm -hmm. right? It's all positive, uh, drives, but, um, you know, meditation and fasting and, and, and celibacy or abstinence, these are all identifications with the void. And, and at one point I took that very far. Like, so for example, the deepest I did was, um, a three day, a three day dry fast, which is no food and no water, 
Whoa. And like by, by the third day of the dry fast, I was like, I couldn't even walk really. <laughs> like I was moving slowly. <laughs> what, what possessed you, you know? to do that? Uh, I got obsessed with fasting. I think mm. it was because I wanted to sort of have some sort of control over my my oral drive because I think the oral drive takes you the deepest because the oral drive takes you to the the deepest recesses of the childlike mind because like what's the first thing the baby wants is milk you know what suck suck on the, the mother's breast or whatever so the or like I, I always notice that whenever you know you you play and I well, I played with that and and you have to sort of endure these childlike emotions like i remember the first day i started fasting i cried and <laughs> because because it was the first day in my life i hadn't eaten mm. you know is the 24 i hadn't hadn't gone a 24 hour period without eating wow. <laughs> it was a repetition i had done every day of my life so then i stopped doing it and 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 you you encounter and all those emotions come up and and uh you know so i anyway i call that the the identification with with the void but or you can call that the identification with the void, but um, this is where there's that weird relationship between life and death, because going through that void, there was something necessary in that, I think, because it was a, it was a, like, I even remember the first day I started, like, seriously meditating. It was like, like, I couldn't sit still for, like, 10 minutes, and there's all these weird images coming into my head, mm -hmm. and now I can, I can sit still quite easily, but, and, and I, you know, I got pretty, you know, whatever it means to be good at meditation, just being still and just being capable of being still. Um, but, you know, there's something, there's something that I gained a certain subjective depth by, by doing those types of things, because I think I, I think you're literally brought to your metaphorical umbilical cord, mm. you know, and, and Fro Freud called, um, uh, that the, the void, basically the, uh, the navel of the dream, which I think is a nice metaphor, the navel of the dream. Imagine that that image in your head, <laughs> it's like, yeah. because you're brought to the core of the birth of your dreams, and and that's again the void potential. Um, so like I feel like you 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 go through a potential rebirth, and and then there's a life on the other side of that, and and you know I I even think like for example in in Christian metaphysics, I mean that the story of Jesus being on the cross and 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 dying and then being resurrected like that's a metaphor for this you know you're in life and then you encounter negativity and then you get reborn on the other side well also you know, the so 40 days in the desert another interesting one, right yeah. yeah yeah totally and you clear yourself out and you and then he sees god right and all right like like he has some experience like some some ex transcendental experience you because you you cleared yourself out yeah you know there, there's a relationship with asceticism and vitality and it, the image comes to mind where you know, in my life, when I notice that I'm, I'm not pursuing the things that matter to me with the fervor that I would like, it's almost always because I am overstimulated or oversaturated by the, the abundance of modern life. And the, the mode I go into once I notice that is not quite as extreme as what you described, but it is a form of asceticism. And it's basic things like I, I limit my screen time. I completely block out these hyper-stimulating websites like YouTube and Instagram. My phone goes on black and white. Um, I might do fasting or uh, intermittent fasting, you know, skip breakfast. Uh, but there's this, this asceticism that comes online that becomes very clarifying. And it's almost like 
you realize that you were at a certain point in the mountain, that you're climbing up the mountain and you got stuck. And so you have to go all the way back to the base of the mountain. And then you stay there for a little bit. And then out of that place, some new vital impulse emerges. And then you climb up the mountain from a completely different path or, or you do so with more, more energy. And to me that this, like these cycles, I guess, of, uh, absence and excess, I think yeah. are, are the, it, kind of what you were saying earlier, that's a tension that we're not meant to resolve. Maybe it's something we just play with and oscillate through. Yeah. I, I, you know, I, I'm not sure, um, if they're ever fundamentally resolved, you know, because, you know, and, and, and also the feeling of, do you really want them to be resolved? I mean, do you really want to never eat again? You know, mm -hmm. eating is a, is a relationship between absence and excess. Do you want, do you want to never have sex again? Or, you know, do, do you never want to have ideas again? Um, these are all sort of relationships between absence and excess, but I, I do think that there's a way in which, um, in some sense, these absences and excesses can be contained by a higher order becoming, or, um, what I might call the, the drive, mm. um, which is that the drive, like, so in the way I think about the drive, you know, you could, we could also frame this in terms of the concept of becoming, but the concept of the drive is basically a parallax shift on the, the nature of desire. So in the mode of desire, you always kind of want to achieve or satisfy your object of desire. So there's always this sort of end in mind hmm. with drive with drive. It kind of enjoys its own motion. And so, so you still experience absences and excesses, but there's a, a qualitatively different relationship to the way you experience absences, absences and excesses. Another way I think about this is a sort of a form of becoming that contains its own life and death or its own birth and death, mm. you know, but, but that it requires like sort of going to the ground of your childlike impulses and also confronting your own finitude and mortality. But there is a form of becoming or a form of drive, I think on the other side of engaging this uh, spiritual dimension. Yeah, that, I think there's a quote by Nietzsche where he said it's, in the end, it's the desire that we love, not the desired, something like that. I might be getting it wrong, but... Um, yeah, the desire to keep desiring. Yeah. So uh, one of the things I, I want to bring into the conversation, maybe as a final topic, is this notion of masculinity. Because so much of what we've described to me, and so much of, I think, what what Nietzsche offers is, is kind of like the masculine mode of being. And to be honest, I don't have a very coherent explanation for what I mean by that. I have more of a, an impressionist painting in mind when I think of something mm. like masculinity. I imagine you have a tighter definition. Um, but just to tie in some of the stuff we've discussed already, this like self-overcoming, this um, you know, voluntary uh, acceptance of hardship, this uh, asceticism, um, the the coming to terms with death, you know, like looking at the void, um, putting pressure on yourself willfully, competition, testing yourself, um, overcoming implies hierarchy, um, 
all of these things to me are on the masculine end of the masculine feminine continuum. And there's so many things I want to riff on here. But first, uh, do you agree with this intuition that this has been kind of a theme in the discussion? And second, what is your definition or favorite definition of masculinity? Okay, so I do sort of see, like, there's a reason why so many young guys like Nietzsche. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like, he, he, he resonates with a certain character. He resonates at a certain time in life for some people. Um, I don't think it's a coincidence that when a lot of guys' sexual drive is coming online in a major way, um, that they they find some something attractive about the the mode of being that Nietzsche is, is offering and the the ethic that he's offering and 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 these types of things. Um, and it, it's true that many dimensions of his philosophy give you a sense of a you know an affirmation of 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 competition and and mm -hmm. higher and and hierarchy is a positive thing and 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 these are things that are usually more associated with um with it with a masculine spirit um in terms of the way i try to think through masculinity and femininity in a technical sense is basically starting with the i mean the freudo lacanian tradition of psychoanalysis where there is freud starts with the idea that the libido is masculine and he defines the libido as masculine in the sense that it's um an action oriented energetic impulse and uh femininity is kind of the the tradition so let's start let's go even deeper so in in the ancient world the traditional definitions of masculinity and femininity were based on the active and passive principle mm. so this is where freud derives the metaphysics of of these paradigms is active and passive and it's of course a little more complicated because there are forms of of feminine expression which are i would call passively active or actively passive like a good example is like um if a woman is like for example if it, my, my my partner spends a lot of time doing makeup and dressing up you know or or you know th there's a way in which even if like for example a woman goes out to a club or goes out with her friends she might not approach the man mm -hmm. but she acts passively in the way she dressed up in the way she puts her where she puts herself way she opens herself to a man there's a activity there and 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 naive masculinity doesn't see that mm. like naive masculinity thinks they're acting it's like no no she's already acted she's already you know she's already open to you right she's already she's already said yes in some sense or she's already you know so that's the action in the in the passivity but you know, there's there's a way in which under this paradigm of of libido being masculine and femininity being this type of um, mystery of the libido, you know, it's mm. like the it's like the object of the libido, and in terms of being the the object of the libido, also the the failure of the object, right, uh, being rejected, um, you know, being being broken up with. Um, you know, not at, and and so forth. All of the vicissitudes of the sexual drive. Mm -hmm. um, it's also related to the symbolic in the sense that the masculine connects the libido to the symbolic, 
and the woman exists in the gaps of the symbolic. So to give you examples of what I mean by that is like, and they're even like neurological and like a work, I forget what discipline, probably cognitive science studies about this, is that a woman, in order to be sexually attracted to a man, needs to fall into his story. Mm -hmm. So the libido needs to be connected to the symbolic. Whereas for a man, a man can immediately see through aesthetic preference whether he wants to be with that woman or not. Like, right. So there's a way in which he doesn't need to hear her symbolic story in order to, for sexual attraction to, to work. Right. So the, and, and now this is not so I want to always today we have to make this clear of is course. that this is not a direct mapping onto biology, that this also functions in lesbian couples and gay couples and all different sorts of gender identifications. The point is, is that sexual difference appears irrespective of your gender identity. So you could have any gender identity you want, but this type of um, what would be called in Lacan, the, the phallus, the phallus will appear in any constellation of identity. So like, for example, lesbians playing with the phallus or, you know, taking certain positions, you'll have different sort of common terminology like tops and bottoms and stuff like mm -hmm. this. All of these phrase, all of these different terms that appear in all these types of different sexual relationships are all still different manifestations of sexual difference for psychoanalysis. And what actually psychoanalysis is getting at is not um, identification with a substance or a bi like an organic substance. It's a mode of enjoyment. So there's a mode of masculine enjoyment, which is mm. called phallic enjoyment. And there's a mode of feminine enjoyment. So, and the, there are different forms of enjoyment. And like, for example, I can also experience feminine enjoyment, but you have to make the, like, but if it's not your dominant expression, you have to sort of that takes a sort of spiritual work on your part to explore what is my mode of feminine enjoyment. Right. So that's like the, 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 I mean, that's like the entry point to how I think about it. So w one of the things that came to mind there was the yin yang symbol, which I feel like represents this. I don't know if this is just my own interpretation, but the black paisley has a white dot in it and the white paisley has a black dot in it. So, you know, the active mode has a passive component, the passive mode has a has an active component, and there's some sort of uh, dynamic there. Um, and the other thought that occurred to me was that the active mode, the masculine mode, seems to be more comfortable with, or the, the mode of enjoyment involves an appreciation of antagony. And I don't know if this is technically true, but I've just noticed in my masculine relationships, whenever there's some sort of conflict, let's say a debate or a disagreement, it's actually uh, appreciated. Um, it leads to uh, excitement or a form of play. And in my more feminine relationships, um, it's not seen as a good thing. That conflict is, it's like the impulse is like, let's resolve this conflict. Like there's tension right now that shouldn't be there. And I, I, want, I wonder if that connects with what you're trying to say there, or if there's another way to think about that. But where does antagony fit in with this masculine-feminine polarity? I think it's related to what I would call 
we could use many words. We could use basically the the vicissitudes. We could say the failure. We could see the problems of the object or objectification. And I would say I would I would link this back to even the difference between a scientific form of objectivity and a psychoanalytic form of objectivity. Hmm. Because scientific objectivity and psychoanalytic objectivity are not the same. Um, when we're talking about psychoanalytic objectivity, we're, we're talking about basically the relation between the libido and its enjoyment and the link between the libido and its enjoyment. So when it comes to conflict or, or antagonism, it's all in the asymmetry between the libido and its object. And this is true for men and women. So for ex I can give some, some examples on, on the feminine side, how this manifests, because it manifests differently than many people intuitively think, which is basically in the, in the level of the woman's own body. So for the man, it's usually in relationship to achieving a replacement for the mother, because the original love object is... The, and now this is true for subjects, whether you're born a male or female, is that all babies want the mother. Mm -hmm. The babies don't want the father. <laughs> right. The father has a the father does has a has actually has a, a a weird psychological transition that's involved in becoming a father because and our actually our society does a disservice to men in terms of teaching about this transition because actually the primary love object for the woman is going to switch from the man and his phallus to the baby which mm -hmm. is the new phallus and and men in that position usually can feel rejected or neglected in that situation can you define but, a phallus yeah well of course the phallus is derived from the root of the organ mm -hmm. but it's also in the human lacanian terminology it's always in the symbolic meaning it's always a representation of that energy so the phallus is a representation of phallic enjoyment but right. it's a rep it's always a representation so like for example if you have um an athlete that wins a championship and they put the 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 trophy above their head or they have some or even like you you hit a home run or you get a slam dunk that's a form of phallic enjoyment it's mm. a metaphor it's a representation of that orgasm you know even that even the metaphor of sports is that you put a ball in a hole right like, and you put the ball in the hole better than the other guys put the ball in the hole. Right? So it's, 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 a, it's a metaphor of, 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 phallic, of phallic enjoyment, and it, you could say in that way. Or even like that you have a, um, like if you're a musician and you have the microphone. Mm -hmm. Right? I got the mic. I got the, the thing. Right? I've, I've got the, you know, I've, you know, and, 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 and in the context of, of the musician or, or the athlete that, I mean, being the guy with the thing, it gets you a lot of feminine attention. Right. Right. And it, it, and it's not, it's, and it's asymmetrical. This is crucial because, you know, you go to a, uh, a music concert and, uh, and, and the musicians always have groupies, but it's not the same for like a Beyonce or yeah. Shakira, like they're, they don't have male groupies like that and they don't want male groupies like that. <laughs> right. right. So it's, it's not, it's asymmetrical, but the, the, the point, the point is, is in regards to the phallus is that for the woman, the woman also has a phallus, 
which is her body. It's just that the relationship with the energy is distributed differently. So men become hyper-focused on their, their phallic enjoyment, which is at its root, the penis. Mm -hmm. And then it gets sublimated into different things and they become hyper-focused about it. Right. But it's, it's basically the same motion of energy sublimated into a different way. With the woman, it's distributed throughout her entire body. So the energy is distributed throughout the entire body, meaning that what, what happens in puberty, you start doing makeup, you start doing dress and you dress up your entire body. Mm. And when you dress up your entire body, you want to represent the equal, the equal thing of representing as the phallic energy is I'm, I'm the bad, I'm, I'm the best looking woman. Right. Right. You go out, I'm the best looking woman. Right. Or I get the most likes on Instagram or I get the most, you know, I get the most attention on Instagram. My body gets the most attention. Right. So that's that's basically the equivalent. And of course, that energy translates into the the child ultimately. Um, which becomes the, the new object of attention. And that's really, you know, like the 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 biggest transition in a woman's psyche. You know, from representing her entire body as the thing to having the child as the thing. But um, the energy manifests um, differently in the way in which also we're recognized and, and, and experience enjoyment um, operates differently because of that. Like, so for example, um, I've talked to many women about this is like if they go through puberty and they don't like their own body image, they'll stare at the, the, the mirror for hours hating themselves, mm. right? Or like even the condition of like anorexia or like, you know, starving yourself or like cutting yourself, right? This is something that's experienced far more by women than men because they actually don't like their body. And that's actually the expression of that energy, right? They don't get the attention they want. They don't cut, they don't get the power they want. Right. So that, 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 that hits the ego. That's, that's a, that's a hit to the ego, mm. which is, which is the main tension. That's the whole reason for psychoanalysis, according to Freud, is that there's a tension between the sex instinct and the ego instinct is that our ego is actually like, like, <laughs> like basically think about your ideal sexual fantasy and then think about the impotence of your ego. <laughs> right. And that, and that tension between the ideal sexual fantasy and the, what your ego is actually is, is is why some people go to psychoanalysis <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> because they don't know how to resolve that tension um and and that 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 drama that ensues from the gap between the ideal image and the the reality of the situation or the reality principle so you know these are usually the most intimate and this is where this is where psychoanalysis wrestles with objectivity And for the, for the man, the sexual energy is not so much. He won't like starve himself or cut his body or something like that, or stare in the mirror and hate it, hate it himself, not in the same way that a woman might, but he might be uh, extremely insecure about his, his performance in bed or his, his penis size or, you know, his, uh, or his, um, his metaphorical phallus, namely his career, his money, mm -hmm. his, you know, his car, his status. These are all representations of the phallus, right? Like, if a guys get together and like, who's got, you know, there's a higher, there's a hierarchy. Who's got the most money. Who's got the most attention. Who's got the most fame. Who's, who's the most successful. Who's the most talented. Who's who, you know, who's the best at X, Y, and Z. 
right? This is all representations of the of the male the male hierarchy in a libidinal context. I, I don't know if you said this or this came out in a conversation um, with Alexander Bard, but uh, I think it was you. You said modern the modern era is a challenge to the phallus. Mm -hmm. What did you mean by that? I don't know if that was Bard saying that or me, but I can sort of, I mean, I can interpret that in my own way. The modern challenge mm -hmm. to the phallus is that, um, well, let's just take it in the most explicit common sense language that we hear in the pop culture is that the deconstruction of the patriarchy. Mm -hmm. So the, the deconstruction of the patriarchy is basically a challenge to a, a, a certain historical manifestation of phallic energy. Now there are these different hypotheses about it, right? Like some, like some people will have, some women will walk around with shirts saying the future is feminine or like, you know, like all, this idea that there's going to be this polar reversal where so-called phallic energy was dominating the history and in the future, feminine, uh, energy will dominate the, the future. So there's like this reversal between sexual energies. And usually this reversal of sexual energies is connected to a multiplicity of gender and sexual expression. So mm -hmm. usually with, with like, so for example, feminist movement is usually connected with also not just, now this is a weird thing about, this is why it's asymmetrical between phallic energy and feminine energy, because it, it's asymmetrical because the feminine category is not, um, in some sense, it, 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 it holds all subaltern identities. In other words, mm. the feminist movement, the, the feminist movement is connected to also the LGBT plus movement, which includes men, but of a certain sexual expression, which is non-hetero sexual expression, right? So the feminine category holds all those other categories, right? It's part of the same struggle, at least in terms of representation. It's, and, and, and also there's also going to be a whole bunch of paradoxes as it relates to the way we think about this racially. So for example, usually it's always connected to the white heterosexual patriarchy, mm -hmm. but there's going to be a whole bunch of paradoxes when it comes to black or Hispanic or Asian or uh, other categories of, of patriarchy, right? And, and the way in which these identities intersect. Um, but the modern challenge to the phallus is basically this idea that the history of civilization was mediated by the primacy of the phallic energy and the exclusion of the feminine energy. And, and that the feminine energy is going to be like a polar reversal or is a polar reversal right now where we're seeing sort of more the expression of feminine energy, even to the point where it's down to the singularity of each individual, where we all have to confront our androgynous nature. Mm. You know, like, like Freud would say the unconscious is bisexual or fundamentally we're carry both identities. So, I mean, I could also go into like political analyses of like, of, of the consequences of this potential polar reversal with like you have, for example, in the um, 20th century, you would have many metaphysical paradigms operating in a patriarchy patriarchal or phallic way trying to replace christianity as the father like christianity is the father mm. right like christianity is he's the ideal the ideal dad <laughs> right and 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 so when you have the death of god 
you have the death of the father and that's connected right because you have the death of god you have the decline of religion and you also have the decline of the nuclear family paradigm of having a father in the home right these are all connected and so then you you now you open up in the 20th century and there's atheistic fundamentally political paradigms which are trying to be the secular father mm -hmm. so like for example marxism or fascism would be movements or even capitalism mm -hmm. these are all sort of phallic forces which are trying to replace the metaphysics of religion capitalism has so far won capitalism is is so far i think the the true dominant force the mm -hmm. the 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 force that we all sort of uh recognize as regulating the social substance of civilization universally without political ideology so like you could have different political ideologies of capital but we all have to sort of play the game of capital to some some degree yeah and um you know uh the 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 explicitly political secular phalli like the fat the fascist and the communist experiments they they failed so they 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 exhausted their potentiality, so to speak, and and we don't really have new language to think about new political movements on that level, right? Like, we don't have a com, com, a, a serious competitor to global capital in the way that those alternative political paradigms emerged in the twentieth century. So that's how I see sort of what's going on. Yeah, a couple of things come to mind there. One is uh, that. Western civilization doesn't quite have a God, but we do have uh, a devil, um, and that's Hitler. And in a way, World War II and Hitler being like the worst possible being who ever existed is a defining backdrop for, I guess, like this uh, religious substance of the West. And so there's almost, perhaps that's a generator for the skepticism of the phallus and uh basically how modern life is is more is a, is a challenge to the phallus so that that's something that comes to mind but what i wanted to hear you riff on is characters like jordan peterson who popped up you know there's 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 a couple characters like this where they pop up like peterson i think became like the internet's dad and yeah almost filled this gap of like a like a positive logos oriented masculine symbol and said pretty straightforward things that a lot of young men really needed to hear like take responsibility for your life and clean up your room bucko clean up your room and and don't forget the bucko yeah. <laughs> you gotta get the you gotta get the bucko in there <laughs> that's right <laughs> um and i, I so I knew Peterson personally, and I, I went I went through a really strange experience with with this when I realized how maligned he was by the media, and I was so yeah. shocked. And I was very naive about this too because I remember when they first started to claim he was a neo Nazi, I was like, "Oh no, you just got to watch his lectures. Like you guys are confused. Like check check it out." And I figured the neo Nazi right. thing would just like disappear, but it didn't. No, it got more intense. It got more <laughs> intense, and it yeah. was such a surreal experience for me to see someone that I knew personally just kind of enter the public sphere and then have this like ridiculous persona attached to him. And you know, I'll save my thoughts for what I think has happened with his story arc, but um, it just made me think like, why, 
why are people so upset about someone talking about this much needed masculine spirit in in what I think was you know he wasn't he wasn't perfect about his communication I think he had some flaws in the way that he delivered his message but overall like a surprisingly balanced and kind of reasonable take reasonable person and I want to tie this in with a more recent character which is Andrew Tate and I don't know if you've ever encountered this guy but yeah yeah I know I know about Tate so the parallel I want to set up here, I just had this thought the other day that Andrew Tate is dark world Jordan Peterson. And this is kind of like a, a funny, funny take, but I think there's some truth to it. You know, I could, I could exonerate Peterson um, because I knew him. I, I knew the images in the media were not accurate. Uh, I can't do the same for Tate. I actually don't really know who this person is. You know, I, it's like hard to make sense of, of these kinds of celebrity characters. But if I were to take this, um, you know, kind of give him the benefit of the doubt. It just seems like he's another guy that is very intensely teaching young men the importance of this phallic energy. And he has like this Dan Bilzerian aesthetic and he's kind of outlandish and he's like signaling his status. He knows how to fight. Um, he, he's made a lot of money and uh, he's also become kind of the most, it's like the similar story arc to Peterson. He, he exploded in a very short period of time, became the most searched person on the internet. And then he got insanely canceled. Like he's now like the most mm -hmm. canceled person on the internet. And that, that kind of happened to, to Peterson too. They tried, they tried to cancel him in all these different ways. Um, there's so many things I, I'd, yeah. I'd love to hear you riff on here, but uh, actually, you know what? I'll just, what, what do you think is most interesting in that little cloud that I, that I just put out there? Yeah, it's it's such um such an interesting thing to think about. Um I think they are Well, I'll say 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 for Peterson, he's he, I agree with you that he kind of became like the internet's dad and there was some some sort of like necessary function that that he was playing there in his performance. Um but I also think it's an example of sort of the masculine identity pushed to its extreme of of, of self-relating paradox as well, because both masculine both masculinity and femininity, this is true for both. Like it's not like a, just signaling out one, but it's both masculinity and femininity are not absolute categories. They exhaust themselves. The logic of the category exhausts itself, and you can you can push it to its own extreme. Like so, for example, like this, the tendency of the masculine is to sort of become the phallus, like mm. you're the man, but every person who becomes the man falls. Mm -hmm. Right. So like, if you actually think you're the man, you're like almost doomed for a identity cat catastrophe mm. because you're not the man. Like there is no the man, every man falls. It doesn't matter how high you get, you're going to fall. And so if you don't really know that on a deep emotional level, then you're not like, basically you're not, you're, you're a, a libido, which is not accounting for the void. Right. In it, like, and, and you, and you think, and consequently your speech, your speech, which at one time was serving sort of a libidinal function ends up becoming increasingly empty. Right. So you, you become old man yelling at clouds. Wow. Right. <laughs> right. So, so, so you got you got to watch you got to watch out for that, and that's like one of the dangers of the phallic function, 
in regards to like in regards to Tate, it seems to me like he's exploiting the pleasure principle in a masculine image of capital, right? Like, like, like if if you behave like me, you can have Ferraris and like ten like Instagram girls from Miami, mm -hmm. you know. <laughs> like like so so you know just buy my course and you're gonna have a ferrari and 10 girls at your at your mansion in malibu or something like whatever whatever it is the fantasy is it's being sold but it's it, it's it's explicit exploitation of the pleasure principle in the sense of our primal drives hooked up to the digital medium and a lot of young impressionable boys looking for objects of desire that will take away the meaning crisis like there's something more empty and vapid about tate there's also something that brings you to a deeper reel than peterson at the same time yes, like because yes. because peterson was peterson was trying to sell you this image of conservative christian meaning um sort of revived in a scientific psychological interpretation of a christian conservatism and that image is going to exhaust itself too. Like that will run into its own paradoxes as well. It will sustain you for for the time it might sustain you, but it's it's going to run into its paradoxes as well. Uh, with with Tate, you're almost getting closer to the bone, so to speak. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, but at the same time, it's it's you know it's it, you're closer to the bone, and and at the same time, you're closer to the sort of um, the specular fantasy um which which will reveal its emptiness so in either case both pathways i think lead you to in my view um a uh, masculinity that hopefully can include the void within itself and i think a masculinity that can in can include the void within itself is actually going to be the form of masculinity we need it's not going to be the flashy guy with the with you know with with the ferrari and the the 10 Instagram girls or whatever. It's it's going to be the form of masculinity that realizes that all objects fail. Mm. Right? And that form of masculinity, and not only, so it's the form of masculinity that not only realizes all objects fail, but continues to move in the world with a high energy and a high ethic. Mm -hmm. Right? If, if you know all objects fail, and you continue to move with a high energy and a high ethic. That's the masculinity I'm looking for. That's the masculinity I'm I'm trying to to, to be. Yeah. So I so think uh, a, a question comes to mind, which I think might be a nice closing question. Um, and for context, this this was on my mind because I had a conversation with Jordan Hall last week, where we were talking about death, and he had said in a couple locations, a couple podcasts that. The most important thing that anyone can do right now is to come to terms with their death. And I remember when I first heard him say that, I was like, wait, what? Like, that's possible? You know, that's a move on the chessboard of human life? I thought we were all destined to kind of be in some vague denial of death. And so we had a chat about this. Shout out Ernest Becker. Yeah, exactly. Shout out, shout out Ernest Becker. <laughs> very very that's depressing the home, book. That's the homie right there, man. Um, <laughs> he, he said, he said that, uh, first, not everyone can, can do this, right? Not everyone is in a position where they're able to do that. You know, maybe you haven't encountered uh, loss or, you know, your, your life is just not in a position where you're close enough to death. But he gave the example of the Navy SEALs where they're trained to 
live as if they have already died because that's essential for the mission. You know, if you go into the mission that is already going to be life-threatening and you're afraid of dying, then you're going to perform poorly. And to me, this maps on in a kind of more visceral way to what you, what you just said about the kind of masculinity that we need, a type of masculinity that is still mission-oriented, vital, going forward, but is fully viscerally aware that these objects will fail, that they will fail, they will die. And, um, you know, we, we riffed on how do you do that, right? Like, how do you come to terms with your own mortality? The SEALs, they create a culture, you know, they have an initiation ritual, Hell Week. Some people actually die in Hell Week, so it's, it's a very real rite of passage. Um, there's been deaths in the past. And then they, you enter a brotherhood on the other side of it where everybody's reaffirming this certain unique kind of identity where death is very salient to you. And then you, you lose some of those brothers in, in battle. So that makes sense. I understand how, you know, if, if you and I went through something like that, if we survived something like that, we probably would be really aware of our own death and probably would be in a better place to come to terms with it. But I guess um, my, my closing question to you is, how do you think about death and have you come to terms with it? Right. Yeah, it's, 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 uh, I would say it's probably the most fundamental aspect of, of my philosophy. There was a tagline I had when I first joined the intellectual deep web, which was, uh, die again, die better. Hmm. I actually took that from uh, Samuel Beckett, but, um, you know, the idea of die again, die better was almost to aff affirm death but with the the die again die better it's a it's a metaphorical death of your identity and and also this idea that on the other side you come out almost pure i don't know if pure is the right word <laughs> you 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 you're deeper or you're you have the possibility to be more real mm, words are difficult here but um in terms of sort of how i've sort of processed my own death. I think a lot of it was related to that, those um, void practices I was telling you about on the other end of my PhD, whether it was the fasting, whether it was the meditation, mm -hmm. whether it was the abstinence and the celibacy, because it's sort of like a subtraction of my life energy. It's sort of an identification with the void, but it, it's also in sort of the, the confrontation with my father's death, the confrontation with my grandfather's death who passed away um, just uh, a year and a half ago. And my father passed away in 2017 and having a chance to move through those those deaths uh when in my grandfather's case i was at his side mm. you know when when he died um and there was sort of like a passing a passing on in which we you know he was there he was there for me throughout my entire childhood and i was there for him at his uh at his end and uh sort of just puts your whole identity into a different context and, and puts your whole identity into a different um, frame of mind. But then on the, on the other side of, of, of things, you know, not just sort of developing a philosophy, which takes death as sort of like a, a fundamental aspect. Like I was telling you about this, this weird tension between life and death. I don't have the, all the answers to what this tension ultimately is about, but um. It, it, I think it involves, in the positive aspect of things, forming relationships in what I would call libidinal economic context, which are unto death, mm. uh, 
And that that's a constraint that you put on yourself, not because of God, not because of religion, not because of any traditional meaning, but because of those relationships. And, and the interesting thing about those relationships is that those are the only relationships that become irreplaceable relationships because you can have many partners, but you can't replace a certain history, right? Mm -hmm. Like that's the, that's, I think the thing that a lot of people are going to have to come to realize in the younger generation is that you can replace people. You can have many different sexual partners and so forth, but you can't replace a certain history. You only get one of those with you know, with, you know, and, and you lose a partner, you lose that history, you can't get that back. You can get a sexual partner again, but you can't get that history back. Right? So, so basically, in that libidinal economic context, you start with the sexual drive, but you build out from the sexual drive towards a network of, if you're a, whatever, if you're a man, a brotherhood, like you were saying with the Navy SEALs, there's a brotherhood, and there's a team, and there's a project. Mm -hmm. Um, and, 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 uh, in the case of a, a romantic partner, whatever your sexual orientation, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of the, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be actual in the sense that, I mean, you actually go into death. It's more the ethic or the ethos that this is under death. I'm not giving up on this, mm -hmm. right? Something might happen where, where, where you have to part, something could happen, but the ethic, the most important thing is the ethic or the ethos that this is unto death i'm not giving up on this we're gonna and and what you what you gain by doing that is you gain um the capacity to work through inner negativity so like a lot of people and like this again this you know so like let me take it back to the example i was saying in the sexual and the sexual reel where you like things aren't going the way you want but you you don't know how to express it and you're bought to really childlike impulses like um you know, like, why do I have to say this? Why do I have to talk about this? Or why do I have to, you know, go to go to the, you know, if you're in a long term relationship, and you want to keep the sexual vitality throughout the long term relationship, you have to have those conversations, you have to go to the core of things, you have to challenge your most childlike impulses. So ultimately, what it's about in terms of the building those relationships under death is ultimately about becoming uh, a mature a mature adult who's capable of moving through contradictions of identity and overcoming oneself. Mm -hmm. Like Nietzsche even says in the Thus Spoke Zarathustra, he first tries to proselytize his message to a marketplace, and then he realizes he was an idiot, and he says, I've just got to go find my friends. i got to find companions. And he tries to find companions, right, where he can have a more targeted overcoming with his, with his friends, and that's what he ultimately you know, points towards, but, um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose that's, uh, something that I've, you know, been trying to work through as, as a, as a fundamental part of my, my spiritual development in the last, say like five or five or six years of life, basically coming out of a place of, um, almost like a, like an atemporal void. You know, coming out of an atemporal void and then like coming back to the world and, and temporality and sort of having this organization of time by death. Cadell, thank you so much for this conversation. <laughs> All right. Thank you for having me. Is there anything uh, you'd like to leave the listeners with? Anything you'd like to share? If you're interested in learning more about my my work and what I do, the best place to find me is on philosophyportal.online. Um, I'm trying to build a space 
which can explore what I have been calling the foundational discourses of the modern world. Um, and exploring those foundational discourses to me is about, in some sense, reestablishing a mature, the best possible phallus we can establish. Mm. <laughs> you know, that's what I'm, you know, and it's, it, you know, it's like it, it, the guys who are going to Andrew, if there was as much energy going to, to Andrew Tate and Jordan Peterson as they're going to philosophy portal, that's my, that's my mission. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I want to, I want to support that mission and, and help direct as much of that energy as possible.